Greetings and salutations, one and all. Welcome to another episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am joined today by a fairly new friend, uh, Jason Ozen. Uh, Jason is the CISO for PIB Group out of the UK, and I think you will probably pick up on that once he starts talking. Uh, Jason, say hello to our listeners. Hello, listeners. Excellent. I love I love a succinct greeting. Um, so before we jump in, I just I want to share a little bit about how you and I met because I think um, I think it's an interesting sort of thing. So Jason, and I have never met in person. Uh, we have only really interacted on LinkedIn. Uh, Jason responded to a post that I thought was interesting and I kind of reached out back channel and we have developed a little bit of a friendship that I think will continue to to grow. But for those of you that out, out there that don't think LinkedIn is useful or important, here's a great example, right? Jason and I have now met each other and become friends and we'll continue to, to kind of interact. So I think it's always interesting uh, in the world we have. And I think you and I are probably of similar ages. Uh, and we came up where there, there was no social media. There was, there was no LinkedIn. You met people in person and everyone had like these limited circles. So sure. I'm excited to have you in my, in my friend, uh, my friend group. So before we actually jump in, Jason, maybe share a little bit with our listeners about your your background and, and your journey. I think people are always interested in hearing how people get to these jobs because everybody wants to be a CISO except me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to start backwards. I'll tell you what I'm doing now. So as you say, I'm CISO of PIB Group. PIB Group is a massively acquisitive engine. It's um, We've done I've been with a group now almost six years. We've been around seven years. In those seven years, we've acquired to date 94 companies. So 94. Wow. Yeah, it's a big. I always say if you don't like change, you don't work for PIB Group. Um, we're primarily insurance. We've got a number of parallel industries as well, but primarily insurance. Um, and we, we've hoovered up most of the UK, not most, but a lot of the UK. Uh, and we've moved into Ireland, Spain, right across Europe. Um, now and that's where our acquisition is carrying on so uh, yeah it's a very exciting company to be working for, a group of companies to be working for my background is it my background is um uh, it i had a managed service provider for many many years i think 22 years i was i started a managed service provider uh, i ended up selling it to my partners um i obviously did a lot of security through that and what have you i um I want to say I semi-retired. I didn't really semi-retire. I just took a year off effectively and then um, joined PIB Group. And it's been, a, it's been eye-opening because because I never imagined I could be able to survive in a corporate environment. And it's been amazing. It's been really good. Yeah. So I love that. And, and you know, it's interesting because I, I've never been on the CISO side. I was a practitioner. I did pen testing. Uh, you know, I had some operational things. I did run a security program, but it was so long ago they weren't even CISOs back then. But I, I went from the advisory sort of consultative side to being with a vendor. And to your point, it's been it's a big difference. I went from a company with forty thousand people to a company with one hundred and fifty people. Um, you know, in my my old environment, I would put my hand up and say, "I need this," and it would be there. And now I put my hand up and Jess says, well, you better go do that, right? So, um, you know, Je Jess is our head of marketing. She's actually lurking in the background. You can't see or hear her, but without her, this stuff doesn't work well. So, all right, awesome, Jason. So um, 
Uh, as everyone knows, we always start off with a movie question. So let me see. What am I going to give to Jason? Uh, we've, I've done a bunch of these in a short period of time. So, okay, I got one. So um, name a movie that has an unlikely hero, someone who didn't think they could make it happen. And all of a sudden they were put in this position where they had to kind of kind of bring it. Let's Let's talk a little bit about that. So uh, one of my favorite movies is um, Time Bandits by Terry G Gillingham, uh, part of the Monty Python uh, uh, group. And in fact, a lot of the Monty Python group are actually in Time Bandits. Um, and the unlikely heroes are actually a set of um, little people. I think they call them little people in the, uh, in the uh, I don't know what the politically correct name for little people are nowadays, so I, I won't bother them saying it, but you know. I think, I think little, I think little people is good. I think that's, the, okay. I think that works. Yeah. 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 Um, and they work for, um, they work for gods, um, but they're, they're errant, um, they're, they're errant workers for God and they, they steal a time map. Um, and, and a map of time holes through space and go through all sorts of historical things and and and, and they're effectively um, brand themselves as thieves but actually the whole thing's been planned by god uh it, it's a comedy obviously um and um and they're actually um but to do effectively um sort out an issue that god is having and become heroes um and they didn't even realize they are heroes I, it's, I it's love a really that. bad explanation of the film, actually, but it's a very, very good <laughs> film. Very funny. Terry Gilliam's got a very warped um, Salvador Dali type mentality. You've seen it in some of his animations he does from Monty Python. And the film is just it's just gorgeous. It really is. I love it. I have not seen it in a long time. I mean, actually, I'm going to go revisit it because uh, I, I agree. He I think it took him it took uh, Sir Terry a little while to kind of get the recognition because his stuff is so offbeat. Um, Brazil was another one of his with the with the opening scene where they come and arrest a guy. And it's, it's almost yeah, like a yeah, Franz yeah. Kafka metamorphosis. Yeah, so, very, very Kafka. all right. That and, is. Um, and Jabberwocky was another one. Jabberwocky is an amazing one of his films. That I've really not seen that one. No, that, I have not. That, I, I have not seen that. Best, actually, that's probably better than time. OK. Before. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's quite grotesque in places right. as well. Snicker snack. Do, do they? So I'm assuming it's built off the poem, it's right? Off, it's built off the poem, exactly. All right, I will have to put that on my list. Uh, my my movie buddy for a while was my youngest daughter, and she's actually off at university now. So not that my wife doesn't like movies, but my wife is kind of she'll watch whatever we put on. So yeah. uh, I'll have to when she comes home, we'll do that. So okay, so. I have, I have, I think, what is an interesting take. My unlikely hero, I think, is is a little bit of an anti-hero as well, and it's um, Beatrix Kiddo from the Kill Bill movies. Mm. So it's Uma Thurman. Uh, she in the first movie they don't actually use her name. Her name is she's actually the bride. Um, but I love that one because she's not really a good person. No. Um, she starts off in a gang of assassins and then they, they, they do her dirty for, uh, uh, to, to use a, a term. And then, um, you know, she kind of gets it back together and, and the whole movie really is about her trying to get revenge, but then it transitions into saving her daughter. And I, as a father of three kids, uh, two daughters and, and a boy, I, you know, that, that resonates with me. Uh, I'm also, I'm a big Quentin Tarantino fan. Um, another, another sort of paradigm shifting um, 
director. So, um, the, the truth good, is, good, good. So, Tarantino's um, uh, heroes are real heroes. They've all got flaws, and they're all they're all quite. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I I would agree with that. I um, it's interesting because I am listening to Lord of the Rings on uh, audiobook. So I guess Frodo and Sam, actually Sam is more the unlikely hero, I think. But um, the the thing that's interesting is you look at that and. It's very clear in Lord of the Rings who the good people are and who the bad people are. There's no moral ambiguity with one minor exception when Boromir tries to take the ring, but then he quickly recovers his yeah. his, his heroness. And then you look at some of these movies where everybody has questionable morals. And I mean, let's face it, that is more what life is like, right? I mean, Reservoir um, Dogs, you know, there's some heroes at the end, but they're all thieves. They're all crooks at the beginning. You know, uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. I I love that movie, and every time Steeler's Wheel comes on, stuck in the middle with you, I get like that little kind of shiver cringe. Um, so for those of you out there that have not watched Tarantino movies, you do have to have a bit of a strong stomach. The language is terrible, and there's a lot of violence, but there, he's he's a he's a, a an excellent director who pays a lot of homage to people that have come before him. And you know what's interesting? All right. you, you, you mentioned. Sorry, I'm going to just do this quickly. No, no, go ahead. You, you, you mentioned. Um, you mentioned sort of heroes that have got flaws. That's something very biblical about that. If you look, particularly at the Old Testament, every hero, no matter how good they are, they've all, all of them, have done something bad. You know, uh, they will be punished at some point during the story. Uh, it, it's quite amazing, actually. You get that. Yeah. Even the greatest prophet or whatever. Is there, there's always some sort of godly retribution against them at some point yes yes well there are lessons to be learned so i'm sorry i have to interrupt jason do i see pac-man ghosts floating around on something yeah. behind you yeah it's uh, what's it called it's uh it's one of these startup things it's, oh, it's a clock and a radio and you program oh, the left hand side and you can have anything you want so there's the matrix there's matrix coming out and then pac-man oh cool okay yeah. Good. So, of course, of course, none of this is of any use to the people who are listening and can't actually see us. It's all right. We got to enjoy ourselves. So, all right, good. So, so I think talking about unlikely heroes, I think, is an interesting um, transition. Uh, earlier today, I did a presentation on storytelling, and I, I always talk about the hero's journey as an archetypal story. And I always ask people, so where do, where do you think you fit as a CISO in here? And all the CISOs go, oh, I'm the hero. And I go, you're not the hero. You are the mentor, the wise person. The hero is your CEO, COO, CFO. Agreed. Right. So, so I think as a, as a, a CISO, you've been doing it for, for, you said seven years or six years uh, with, with PIB. Um, and you, and you came to being a CISO later in your career, which I think is interesting. So, how do you, what do you see as the, the sort of role of the CISO, which is actually how we sort of started interacting, right? Talking about, yeah. about that. So what do you see as the role of the CISO today and sort of in the future? And then we'll, we'll kind of riff and build from there. So it's very interesting. You mentioned storytelling and it's actually the one thing I always tell people. You can be, you only be a good a CISO if you're a good storyteller. You have to be stakeholder engagement is everything. You have to be able to talk to the board. You need to talk to, uh, you know, the guys on the help desk, um, anyone within the organization. And you can't just throw gobbledygook at them. You've got to be able to tell stories. And particularly with the board, you have to say, say to them, we have a risk. So what? What the hell does that mean? Okay, here's the story. This is what happened if we don't deal with the risk. 
you know, and things like that. So storytelling, stakeholder engagement is probably the best thing you can do for CISO. I've worked with some really technical people who could not talk to people and they will not become CISOs. You have got to learn, if you're on this journey, you've got to learn to be able to present yourself. And it doesn't mean going to courses. It doesn't mean that. It just means just go for it. Just think, I don't care how I speak. You know, I present all the time. I'm umming and ahhing all over the place. I'm getting words wrong, things like that. People accept you. You've got to show some gravitas and you've got to show some confidence. Don't lie. Always tell people, if you, I don't know that, I'll come back to you. Or I know someone who does know that, et cetera, et cetera. But storytelling is really, really important. And in terms of what a good CISO looks like, if you want to be believed by your board and and, and um, respected by your board, then well, first of all, don't cry wolf. Don't tell them everything is at risk. You've probably got, you've probably got 50 risks, 50 to 150 to maybe 300 risks on your risk register. Every one of them in your mind is urgent, but you have to align with the business. You have to understand your business. You have to understand the mindset of the board and there's risk and there's financial risk. OK, this is a risk. What's the financial risk to the company? And obviously that takes into account uh, actual losses. It, uh, it takes into account what people think of you if you were to get breached and things like that. So it, it, it you have to align with the board. And at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, it's you are giving advice to the board. You're giving advice to people. You're saying, this is what I'm telling you I think the risk is. This is what the financial risk is. This is how we sort it out. This is the cost to sort it out. If they then reject that and say no, fine. That's not your job is to tell the story. Tell the story, document it, so that when they come and arrest you, you say, I did tell the board. <laughs> not that, you know, you know what that that may very well be the future i i don't know how much you're following the new sec rule in yeah, the u.s yeah. um but uh well we'll we'll get to that shortly because i i do have some questions there because i think it's interesting for to hear sort of the differences on opposite sides of the ocean um so so i want to i want to circle back because you you mentioned the the wolf and i think that's really interesting and in the storytelling presentation that i deliver i always give examples and that's an example that i give and people say well why what does that mean I say well if you use that story you go to your executives and you can say look there are a hundred risks we're not going to come to you with all of them we're going to come to you with the top ones we've done the legwork so rest assured if we come to you these things are actually real. And, and I think that's a great way to sort of articulate it because they, they think we're the people who say, no, stop, don't, can't do that, too dangerous. And that's just, that's just not a good long-term solution. I mean, and you've been in your role for double the average tenure of a CISO. Sure. So you must be doing something, something right. Um, and, and it really is that storytelling. You know, I am a trusted advisor. I know I'm a trusted advisor because I'm told I'm a trusted advisor without blowing smoke up my, you know, whatever. Um, I, I, and, and that's because they don't hear from me. They, they get the documentation, they get the risk load, they get here, they get that. They, 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 they do hear from me monthly, every month and things like that, but they don't hear from me with problems. They only hear from me with solutions. What we've done to right. solve it within our budget, within this, very rarely do I go to them and say, I need more budget than I've already allowed for in the previous year. I'm always asking for more budget every year because we're a growing company. We want more product. We want more tools. We want more this and the other. On very rare occasions, will I say I actually I've miscalculated or this risk has come up that we didn't even think about and we need more money. I always do it with them. So in which case, fine, 
I'm doing my job. Right. Right. No, I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I, when I manage people and it's been a while since I did, but I always used to tell them, don't come to me with a problem. If you don't even, if you haven't even thought about a solution, it may not be the right solution. We may not go with it, but I want to know that you've sort of noodled on it and, and actually considered what the impact is. Right. Cause if you haven't, you have not assessed it. And then you're coming to me with 150 or, or more risks. Yeah, so. 100%. You want people in your team who are there to take you to the very end of the problem, not just the beginning of the problem. Yeah. Right. So let me ask a question, Jason. Who do you report to at uh, at PIB? Are you in IT? Are you out of IT? So uh, if anyone tells you that information security is not part of IT, they're talking rubbish. Information security is very much part of IT. You are securing IT. Right? That doesn't mean that you report into the IT uh, head of IT or whatever, and I don't. I actually report to the COO. Uh, but we've got a very flat structure, and in fact, I report to the whole board. Um, so I can talk to any one member of the board member, and, and the head of IT sits alongside me, and we get on very, very well. Um, I know of situations, or have been in situations in the past, where the CISO and the head of IT uh, clash heads, and if that happens, that's not going to be a comfortable um, uh, company to work for. So yeah, I... I, I on papers, uh, report to the COO. Okay. So that, so that's interesting. And the way you said that, I think is very interesting, right? Which is you're part of it, but you don't report into it. And I, and I agree with you that there's, there's a big overlap, but I like the way that you put that because I think that ends up being a lot of the discussion. When I was at Gartner, I used to take a ton of calls on where should the CISO report and those questions. Okay, I'm going to put my tap shoes on. I'm going to pull up my cane and my top hat, and I'm going to start with, well, that depends. Let me ask you a few questions first. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on your business model. It depends on all sorts of things. It depends on responsibilities. There's no one answer to that. You know, Basically, the CISO should report to the board, full stop. Which member of the board that happens makes no difference because at the end of the day, if you're reporting something that's significant, so whoever you're reporting to, it needs to go to the whole board anyway. So it makes no difference who I, who I report to, at least where I am, because we have got this open structure anyway. Right. I mean, I always used to tell people where you report is not nearly as important as whether you have the gravitas, and you used that word before, it's one of my favorite words, um, and that you have the ear of those people. I had, I had lunch maybe three years ago with um, a board member for a finance company in the U.S., and we got halfway through the meal and the CISO was there and the, I think the CRO was there. And I said to the board member, I'm like, do you guys know what, do you know what these guys do? And he went, nope. Okay. You have a serious problem then if you don't know what they do and you're not asking. And I, so, I'll, give you a, I'll, give, I'll give CISOs out there a tip or aspiring CISOs out there a tip. Be visible. Be visible as a problem solver, not as a uh, not as a, uh, a producer of risks, um, as a problem solver. So if we have an issue that is significant and it's solved, and there, for instance, uh, we have somebody who's I don't know um, pretending to be COO, CEO, uh, and it's got through to the whole organisation, some phishing attempt or something like that actually tell the board what you did about that say oh we just so you know we got this a little a little threat report this that, and the other and this is how we solved it and this is what we've done to you know a normal a normal um, report send it through to them they may or may not read it but they can then see that you are doing things under them they are paying somebody a salary to actually do something so remain visible. You, what, what a novel idea working working for the money i, I love yeah. that um so 
So you mentioned that that PIB is a very acquisitive uh, company. Um, what is your involvement in that acquisition process? Um, okay, so my involvement in the acquisition is 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 really very very visible. When we were acquiring in the UK only, I was doing the IT and information security uh, um, um, mergers uh, due diligence. Um, now that we've gone into Europe, we having to have that's having to be done uh, via uh, other parties because of language barriers and things like that. But we are we're, I'm, we're always there. I, I always it, it was a great position to be in. I was doing the due diligence. I still am to some extent doing the due diligence on on potential new acquisitions. If we do end up buying them, um, I already know what risks I'm inheriting. That's not 100 percent true because you don't always find everything out through due diligence. Sometimes things come and hit you. In the face after you've acquired a company but in the main you understand the source of at least you get the low-hanging fruit you understand how how risky they're likely to be and things like that so it's a really useful position to be in so i think that's that's actually super interesting um you know in a, in a previous life i was involved after the fact in an acquisition and it ended up and i, I wasn't even really doing primarily security but it ended up costing more to integrate the company than it did to actually buy them in the first place. Sure, sure, and we've seen that. We have seen that at times, you yeah. know. And you, and you, obviously, and and what's interesting is, you know, I we will look at a company. I will put in a report. I would always put a cost to that report. You know what it's going to cost to bring them up to the security and IT standard that we're going to expect for group. I put a price in. That price will sometimes, um, if it's significant, affect negotiations. But the things I find will very, very rarely affect the deal, other than the bottom line, the numbers. It will, it will very, very rarely affect and make us walk away. Right. So I know we're right. going to well, acquire you... things with the most terrible security framework in the world, but we're going to acquire them right. anyway. <laughs> right. But it, but at least you're communicating that exposure. Correct. So then, if you'd say, "Well, we're buying this company for a hundred million pounds." And it's going to cost 50 million pounds to integrate them. The actual cost of acquisition is 150 million pounds, not 100 million. Exactly. And if the figures were that high, as you just mentioned there, they, that would probably be right. us walking away. But yeah, yeah, correct. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, so the, the definition of storytelling I use uh, encompasses the word embellishment. So I embellished a little bit to, to, to make that point. Um, so, so you said you were doing this, the the IT part as well. So the CIO was not involved in the acquisitions, or the CIO was as well. Uh, so the, the the head of uh, so, okay. So the reason the reason I originally got involved at the IT side is because when I came in, we were between head of ITs, and I was an interim head of IT at the same time. Gotcha. Uh, as well, and I took it over, and my new head of IT, who I get on brilliantly with, um, uh, I, I said to me. Do you want to carry on doing it? And actually, because it's my background, right? I said, yeah, I'll carry on doing it. So that's what's happened there. Right. And oh, obviously, right. he gets he gets involved at the end as well, but he, he lets me do a lot, some of the donkey work. And I'm happy with that. Right. Right. Okay. So are you are you involved in the sort of strategic planning before the acquisitions even get sort of initiated? Or are you brought in sort of after they've already said, yes, we're going to look at this acquisition? Yeah, no, no, afterwards. It's very, very rare for me to go, or anyone within the firm. So um, 
it will be the M&A team, the mergers and acquisition team, okay. who look at these things purely. I think they look at it at a, at a uh, accounting level only when they first look at these things, you know, and complexity level possibly as well. You know, if you've got lots of strange shareholders in strange places and, and, and there's something odd going on there, then they may turn it away. But more often than not, it, it, they come in. They, I think I believe what they do is they do an interim offer. Um, and then you get what's called exclusivity, where we have an exclusive go at trying to acquire them. And, and that's when they bring you in. Okay, that, that actually makes yeah, uh, right. yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. So let me let me kind of pivot a little bit. Um, Dora is a, a new operational risk framework out of the EU. Um, it is targeted at financial services and insurance. Um, are you seeing a lot of sort of questions from your executives from the the board about that? No, I had to tell them about it. Um, uh, but, 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 um, first of all, in the UK, we're not subject to DORA because we're no longer in Europe. Uh, right. Although there is talk of the UK government adopting a very similar thing to DORA. But keep in mind that over here, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, who's our regulator, has already got operational resilience as a uh, key framework anyway. So we're already doing it. I think what's different about the FCA's operational resilience and DORA is there's a little bit more emphasis in DORA on third-party risk um, and whatever. But what I said jokingly to a number of CISOs the other day is Dora's come out, but it actually doesn't come into play for, I think, another two years, year, one year and 11 months. Oh, interesting. Okay, I thought it was much more imminent than that. All no, right, no, interesting. No, no. It's got a while. And I said, so what we'll do is we'll do what all CISOs do is we'll panic about it two months from when it's actually going to come in. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But but here's the thing. This th So we're actually seeing a little bit. I had a, a conversation with a, a friend of mine yesterday. She's uh, a chief investment officer for a big company here in the U.S. And um, I asked her, I said, are you hearing about the new SEC rule, right, in the, in the States? And she said, yeah, everybody's basically going to take a wait and see. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Which, which I understand, but I, it's upsetting because <laughs> I I feel like that's not good risk management, right? It, it's not, but I think they've read it and they said, well, we're doing all of this anyway. We just probably haven't got the right documentation in place to prove that we're doing all. Well, we're doing it all, so it won't be difficult for us to do it. So I don't think it's a sea change that everyone's. It was that some people are suggesting it is people who are trying to sell you products for it, but they, uh, there's no sea change. If you're doing your governance properly, you're probably already doing everything in Dora anyway. Right. Okay. Interesting. So, so you mentioned third-party risk. So, I'd actually like to talk about that. Obviously, that is near and dear to us at Black Kite because that's the space we work in. Um, do you do you own third-party risk at PIB as well? Yes, I do because I'm the one who has to answer all the questionnaires that always ask us about our third-party risk. Although that is a fairly new thing, um, but yes, I got. Uh, I, I do own third-party risk, and it is up to me to make sure that we are uh, doing it properly, whatever properly means. Right. Well, right. That's the whole thing, right? It's it's until we start seeing examples. But you, am I correct in saying, uh, Jason, that you both have third parties as well as acting as a third party? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so, and also, we're quite, we're quite unusual because... Uh, being a regulated entity and sending data to other regulated entities uh, and getting data from other regulated entities, all of us are under GDPR, if we use GDPR, we're all data controllers. So we're not 
actually we're all responsible for the data independently from each other so there's no there's no proper line of uh, responsibility we're all equally responsible independently usually but right. then we do have third yeah. parties you know the normal IT third parties and things like that where they are working for us effectively Right. Yeah, we, we've been talking a lot about this concept of ecosystem risk because, you know, people talk about vendor risk and third party risk and supply chain risk. And in my opinion, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts as well. In my opinion, the cyber piece of that, the technology piece of that is the same for those three disciplines. And I think people treat it as different and I think they spend more money and I think then they don't have a lot of, of agreement. Do you, do you see that as sort of what the future should be if it, not yet, because I don't think it is there yet. So, sorry, explain that to me again. So, so we, we typically see organizations have three separate disciplines, right? There's vendor risk, third-party risk, supply chain risk. We right. believe okay. that yeah, yeah. So I, from I, the I, cyber tech perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, I get you. Um, we've never seen it that way. Or well, I've never seen it that way. They're all the same, as far as I'm concerned. There's no difference. Right. There's no difference. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's what we're that's what we're seeing as well, and that's actually what we're we're advising people now. I just got to convince my former colleagues over at uh, at the analyst firm to to agree because I just I think it goes back to the same thing we saw a bunch of years ago. One of my former colleagues, uh, French Caldwell, who actually recently passed, he he had this statement a couple of years ago, probably 10, 10, 15 years ago, that said organizations that focus on compliance as an enterprise thing are better off and spend less money than those that focus on the specific compliance requirements because there's tons of redundancy in the controls, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and in the activity. Yeah. So, yeah, so let's, let's talk at you a little bit about, about compliance. Um, so I, let me just share my, my, quick definitional thing, because I think it's important for the conversation. So I refer to compliance with a big C and compliance with a little C. Compliance with a big C is what the legal and regulatory stuff says you've got to do. Compliance with a small C is here's a list of stuff we say we do. Here's a list of stuff we do. Do they match? Right. And obviously the first, the big C feeds into the, into the little C. Um, you, I'm assuming you guys have a compliance function at PIB, right? Being in the industry you're in. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, we our um, our uh, FCA compliance uh, is separate from our information security and data protection compliance. So yes, we very much got a compliance role. We work closely together, but they are separate entities. And does that roll up into like an enterprise risk function, or are they treated in silos? Uh, so everything reports up to. Uh, a risk. So I, I, again, under FCA, you have to put all your risks in that includes your cyber risks and all the other things. And you have to look at your group uh, risk and, and take all sort of risks into account. Everything from uh, material platforms to uh, geographical risks and, uh, you know, uh, uh, political, geopolitical risks and things like that. So yes, it all gets reported uh, into a risk framework um, for uh, regulators. All right. Awesome. So I, I love that. Do you, do you, do you guys use uh, three lines of defense at all? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. And are you, again, again, are you comfortable with mandated. it? That's mandated by the FCA as well. Are we comfortable with it? Well, so I don't use it personally. Our compliance people uh, use it personally. Are they comfortable with it? It seems to be working. That's all I can say. I'm not sure if they, I think they are comfortable with it, actually. I mean, they've all got their own roles. They're quite clearly defined and, and i do think it works I, I haven't heard any anything negative about it 
All right. Yeah, because one of the things that I used to hear all the time was that most organizations don't have enough people to actually fully segregate the three, right? Yeah. And for the really big organizations that do, you segregate them, but then you have the whole problem of throwing stuff over the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I with get no, so we're lucky. We're between those. We didn't have that. We didn't have enough people. We have got proper segregation now, but we haven't got segregation so bad that it's siloed. So I think we're, we're very lucky as far as that goes. And they very much interact and talk to each other and all part of the same group. Um, but anyway, Dora, Dora, by the way, 17th of January, 2025. Oh, that, okay. That's interesting. So, yeah, because yeah. we've been hearing a lot, a lot of people that it's imminent. But yeah, that's that's another century. Most of the people in the jobs probably won't even be in those jobs. I was, was going to say, well, you won't be seeing somebody else's problem. Except I yeah, uh, anyway. that is the that is the unfortunate thing, and and I think you probably have seen some of the LinkedIn posts that I've been seeing that it looks like the CISO salaries are starting to drop, which I think is a huge issue. Um, and I actually I did I commented on a, a study from uh, IANS, which is an advisory firm. I think they're U.S. only, but um, they found that CISO salaries are still climbing, but they're climbing at a lower rate, which I think makes sense. But you know, then you see some stuff that gets posted where a CISO making one hundred and ten thousand pounds. Okay. That's clearly not enough money, but then what are they paying the people that work for them? Twelve, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a buck three eighty. <laughs> salaries in the UK and Europe are very different from uh, US. Most high-level salaries in the UK and Europe are very different from the US. We haven't necessarily got the overheads you've got in the US. You know, uh, health insurance, education, right? Um, things like that. Um, I think they're still even allowing for that. It's still a very big gap. But also, we haven't got the work pressure. You've actually got the CISO. You know, a CISO in the US would be expected to give his life to the company. Over here, I'm generalizing, but over here, you still get a bit of a work-life balance. Okay. All right. I, I always tell people, and I say this with a little tongue-in-cheek, I don't think you could pay me enough money to go be a CISO anywhere in, in the US. The pressure that those folks are under, exactly. um, and, and I don't know if you're following the new SEC ruling because it's not super relevant to you guys, but um, everyone's talking about the CISO is going to own that. And I'm like, all right, that's great, but they're not covered by director and officer insurance. Correct. Exactly right. They're, yeah. And, and to your point, they don't always have enough of the insight into, uh, into the board, the board level stuff. So, all right. So um, I want to be cognizant of your time, Jason, because I know it is quite late where you are in the UK. So I'm going to I'm going to sum up. I, I picked up some really, really good points. I'm going to sort of articulate them and then I'm going to kick it back to you for any last closing thoughts. But I, I this was actually a really interesting um, conversation. I'm glad to get to know you a little bit more. So first thing, um, CISOs need to be able to tell stories. And I think that is really important. And I'll, I'll share something with you that I actually share regularly. Um, I have noted, I've actually come to the, the awareness. I'm actually an introvert. I don't come off that way, but I would prefer to sit on the couch watching Netflix with my wife, but I play a character, right? I adopt a persona when I do these things. And I think that for those of you out there that think you can't be good storytellers, you can. You have to play a character of someone who's a good storyteller. And I think that is the first thing is that that mental shift. So I love that. 
Um, I love what you said. That it's okay to say you don't know something. Um, back when I interviewed at Gartner 20 years ago, um, they purposely in the interview process ask you questions that they know there is no answer to because they want people to, they want to make sure you're comfortable saying, you know what? I don't know that. Let me get back to you. Right. Because I think anyone who makes believe they know everything, you know, Dunning-Kruger, all, all these sort of cognitive biases. Um, I also love the I'm going to paraphrase what you said, but I, I'm, I'm calling it risk parsing, which essentially is taking that big giant list of risks and now culling that down so you can go to your board. You know, let's face it. Right. Human beings are inherently unable to maintain more than five, six, seven pieces of information in their head at any one time. Right. Um, and then, uh, okay, so that's actually the other stuff I have here are just my, my notes. So any final closing thoughts maybe for CISOs that are struggling or maybe people that are crazy and want to take that job in the future? So uh, I, I, would, I would comment on your character uh, thing. I, I, I think I've also got a character that I'm at work. Um, I, I certainly put on a persona not... I think it's so natural now that it's not knowingly, but I do because I look at myself at work and then I look at myself in a home environment. I am a different person. Um, I too would rather sit in front of the telly or my iPad than go out and meet people. Uh, but at work, I gravitate to people and whatever. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, your, your character is very important work. It's something I've adopted along the way. Um, but almost magically, if you like. So I absolutely agree with you. Um, do you know what? I think I think being a CISO is a fantastic job. Okay. And, and we, we don't hear that that much, Jason. I got to be honest with you. I, I really do. You know, you get a lot of people on LinkedIn saying, oh, they're going to burn out within two years, three years, four years. And there's another thing. You know, if you're a CISO in a company for two years, you're only just getting to know that company. Right. You know, if I look at someone's CV and they, they change every two years, I don't want them in that job. I'm not going to employ If I had to bring somebody in underneath me, um, I don't want somebody who changes every two years. It's going to take them two years to learn the culture of the company, the, the, the risk, uh, uh, attitude of the company, things like that, you know, sadly, people do move on. Uh, so, you know, th 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 that is right. But overall, being a CISO is a really good job, but you've got to be respected by your board. They've got to know why they bought a CISO in. They haven't bought a CISO in because somebody told them along the line they need to have a CISO. They bought a CISO in because they are seriously worried about their security and they seriously want somebody that they think is a safe pair of hands. So if you've got the support of a board, being a CISO is a really, really good job. And certainly for me, it's a really good job. It's exciting. Every day is different. There's a bit of mundane stuff. There's the GRC stuff. There's the bloody questionnaires. There's all the other stuff that you get. But, you know, overall, it's a really nice job. And and to get that feeling of respect and to be able to say something, hi, I need to talk to you. And they will come and talk to you because they know if you're asking to talk to them, you know, being serious. But in order to get that, you have to be a sort of person that commands respect. And that comes back to the storytelling. And it comes back to uh, that. It comes back to um, sorting out your personality. You have to understand when there are certain personality traits you've got that may be detrimental to the role and then turning them down a bit right well so our, our head of marketing jess and i were talking earlier today you know i'm in my mid-50s i know what my strengths are i know what my weaknesses are i've gotten to the point where i'm going to focus on making my strength stronger 
and I'm the weaknesses. They are what they are. And I work around them and I surround myself by people who sort of put that together. So, all right, Jason, this was awesome. I, I love this. I appreciate you giving us uh, the time. So again, uh, thank you for joining us on Risk and Reels, everyone. Our guest today was Jason Ozen from PIB Group out of the well, UK and Ireland and Spain and some other cool places as, as well. Um, so I thank you for joining us. Everyone, please make sure you subscribe so you will see all hear, hear all of our future guests uh, like Jason share wisdom, thoughts, knowledge, their hopes, dreams, and aspirations. So with that, I want to wish everyone stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Very good. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.